All right, welcome to this episode of Quantum Computing Now. I'm here with Mamta Gupta, who is Director of Marketing at Lattice. And we're going to talk about quantum uh, security. We're going to talk about post-quantum security. We're going to talk about her experience. And I'm excited to learn more from you, uh, Mamta. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ethan. Pleasure to be here. And thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Okay, great. So the first question is, give us a bit of your background. How did you get into quantum computing? How did you get into Lattice? Um, all of that good stuff. Okay. So uh, I've been in FPGA industry for now nearly 20, 23 years. And uh, most of it has been spent in doing aerospace defense security products and their rollout. And that's how I got started into the whole security uh, stuff. And if you are in the security uh, business, then, uh, you know, quantum computing, post-quantum cryptography, you just get into that because uh, the whole industry uh, started buzzing about it about 10 years ago, I would say. But this effort has been going on for 20 or more years. And then... Um, so during this journey, I joined Lattice uh, about four years ago, and uh, you know I came in to set up the security business, and uh, uh, that's what I've been doing for the last four years. And in addition to my security responsibilities, I also run the comms view and the data center view at Lattice. And you know, security is a key vector in all these industries. They're all critical infrastructure and they have to be secured against attacks, and now they have to be secured against the post-quantum uh, cryptography you know, point of view or from that aspect. And we'll talk more about it. I'll give you more insights. So all of these things are kind of uh, uh, connected together. Uh, security is now playing a very big role in securing our infrastructure, both data centers and comms. Okay, interesting. Um, and so you said that you have a background in aerospace defense, um, which gets me thinking, reminds me of a talk that I've had with um, Mike Brown at Isara Security. Um, they do more uh, like software quantum security solutions. And during that talk, he was talking about um, different like time horizons that you need to look at when you're deciding whether something needs to be quantum secure or not. And I would imagine that in aerospace, you have pretty long time horizons, right? Planes should be lasting for a while, hopefully. Exactly. So actually, I'm very familiar with ISARA work, and I reference their work a lot because they have uh, worked with government agencies and, and industry agencies, and they have put out very clear timelines. And, um, you know, and they have become a guidepost for a lot of uh, planners, so yes, indeed. So anything. So today we are looking at a quantum horizon at uh, 2030 to 2032. What does a quantum horizon mean? That means when we will have a cryptographically relevant quantum computer. We have quantum computers today. And uh, the industry consensus is that none of those quantum computers today can break our existing uh, cryptography. So there is a big risk associated with the advent of quantum computers, which is that our current traditional asymmetric cryptography will get broken. And a quantum relevant computer is the one with enough power to break our current uh, you know, cryptographic algorithms. 
And that we believe will be available in the time 2030 to 32. We are already in 2023. So any product that will last 10 years in the market and you are designing them today, they better be post-quantum resilient. And uh, so this time horizon has to be kept in mind. And based on that, all the nation states are now publishing very strict regulation with time horizons encoded in them. And uh, the, you know, the thresholds have been brought to be as close as 2025, 2026, that anything that gets released after December 2025 must have certain post-quantum uh, algorithms or protections in place because governments are realizing and they have actually, you know, created lists of critical infrastructures and which ones need to get protected first. So the time horizons differ. Uh, you know, fast moving consumer goods, you can take your time about it because they last five years, six years. Still, you can have an iteration built on it. But all critical infrastructure folks, um, you know, data centers, cloud providers, telecom operators, they're all now looking at post-quantum um, solutions. So, Okay, that's interesting. And the 2032 number, I haven't heard before. Um, I'm curious, where does that number come from? Is this is this Lattice's own number? Is this an industry? No, no, no. Actually, you if you look at so there is a you know there is a whole spectrum of uh, views on when we will have a cryptographically relevant quantum computer. We have, as I said, we have quantum computers today. They are solving problems today, but they are not posing a threat to cryptography. So uh, this is an industry estimate that this is the time when we will have. You will have all kinds of opinions on it. The you know conservative uh, view is, oh my goodness, we will probably have a relevant computer in 2026. But then there are pessimists or, or you know, no, nah, it's not going to happen, you know, till 2035 or 2040. Uh, they are not stable enough. So you can just take your pick, but there is a growing industry consensus. And also there is regulatory pressure building up. That gives you an idea because U.S. government, CNSA, which is an arm of, uh, you know, NSA, they have released guidelines or actually it's not a guideline. It's a mandate that by January of 2026, critical infrastructure must have post-quantum protections in place for any new piece of, uh, you know, uh, either firmware, software, or any um, cyber resiliency feature that they bring out, you should have, in addition to your regular cryptography, you should have post-quantum uh, in there. That gives you an idea that 2030 is not, or 2020, 2032 is not a wild imagination thing if they are putting the uh, deadline to January of 2026. Again, it's a time horizon. They have identified a few critical things like servers and data centers actually have one year before that they must have it. And then, um, uh, you know, comms and other, they have one year more. And then if you see, I would highly recommend that actually you search for CNSA 2.0, just, just Google it. You will see a very clear timeline. And by 2030, they have made a cliff that after 2030, default should be post-quantum cryptography only. So that also kind of points to a horizon, right? 
that there is a cliff building and and uh, you need to be compliant to that. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So where does Lattice factor into all of this, right? When I think a lot of people think of security, they think of software security, right? You want to make sure that you have, keep your apps up to date and your operating system up to date. Um, what, where does Lattice fit into all of this? So Lattice is a chip provider. You know, we make uh, specialty chips called FPGAs, which are like blank slates. You know, you can configure them to do variety of functions. And these FPGAs are utilized in data centers, in comms infrastructure to do secure control, to provide security and do control control in terms of you know, they're controlling your infrastructure. They're controlling the flow of data. They're controlling how you power up securely. You know, how do you connect with IOs or peripherals around you? So that's a big play that we have. So now what these requirements and regulations and cyber resiliency requirements, what they are asking for is a hardware route of trust. So a few years back, people were happy, you know, having... Uh, you know, trust embedded in software or virtual machines. But now more and more regulation and best practices are recommending hardware root of trust. That means you root it in a piece of silicon or a hardware so that it cannot be spoofed or mucked with remotely. And then you bubble up the trust through various layers of your infrastructure. So this is where Lattice comes in. We provide chips that can be hardware root of trust. And uh, this is where we provide uh, regular, uh, you know, crypt cryptography algorithms. And now we also uh, are bringing forth post-quantum crypto algorithms in Embedded World this year in Munich. We demonstrated various uh, PQC algorithms running on our FPGAs that will protect or will give, uh, you know, uh, solutions to protect against quantum attacks. Now, uh, we, we keep talking about attacks from quantum computers and all that. There is a whole bunch of promise from quantum computers too. Like it's not, they are not being developed just to attack cryptography and steal your secrets. They are, they are being uh, developed to solve problems. So we at this time do not have a play in uh, the development of the quantum computers. We have a play in the security to protect against some of the, you know, uh, side effects of quantum computing. But those are very real side effects that will happen. So that's where we are. It's, it's about preparing for the advent of quantum computers. Okay. There will be good and the bad. Interesting. And so this hardware root of trust that you're talking about, uh, I'm trying to think of things that listeners might be more familiar with. Is this something like a like a YubiKey or like a Titan security chip that you might see? Or is this totally different? Am I way off base? Uh, no, actually, you're kind of sort of there. But uh, your um, viewers might be more uh, familiar with something called TPM, Trusted Platform Module. It's a small chip. So a hardware root of trust is basically a piece of silicon that is like a key box where you can put your keys in and you can really close it. It has some cryptographic algorithms that can do certain things, you know, it, and then it will have anti-tamper that you can't really read those keys or muck with them. 
you know, I'm, I'm giving you a very high level view of it. It is, uh, otherwise it's a fairly complicated piece of, uh, you know, silicon, but that's what it does. It protects secrets and it will have uh, algorithms that will be running to either protect secrets or generate secrets so that they can be shared and you can have secure sessions, but it is all in a piece of silicon. So it is a strong box, that a very small piece that you can put on your board and you can store your keys. It'll be anti-tamper. That's what we do too. You know, we have storage. We can do secure boot. We can do a fail-safe boot that, okay, if somebody mucks with your, you know, booting of the chip, we will boot anyhow. We have a, you know, fallback boot. Okay, somebody mucked with my booting file but we always keep a good golden copy and we will boot from there. So various families of devices have various protections, but it is really a piece of, uh, you know, silicon. It is a silicon chip that has very unique capabilities and all root of trust, they will share very similar things. So TPM is a very well known um, piece of uh, hardware that is used as a root of trust. Okay. How, uh, I guess, how ubiquitous are these? Like, does my laptop have this? Does my phone? Or is this just in data centers? Uh, no, no, no. So Microsoft actually, with their, I think, 11, um, OS 11, or whatever they call this, uh, uh, Windows 11, onwards, a TPM is a must. So your laptops will have it. All servers have it. And uh, quite a few uh, phones have it. Uh, all laptops now actually they are putting it in. Uh, your hand scanners might have it. So all machines that force you to log in are increasingly converting to a TPM-like security or some kind of hardware root of trust uh, thing. So one thing, one point I want to make about TPMs is TPMs are based on classical cryptography, which is going to be broken by quantum computers. So every TPM on this planet, which are there, which are billions of them today, will either have to be fixed or will have to be replaced. So this is, and this is where Lattice shines because we are a reprogrammable chip. You can, as I said, blank slate, you program us to do one thing, then you reprogram us to do something else and we are okay. So we are not hard coded, right? So a post-quantum protection algorithm comes along people can implement that and fix their TPM. So we are providing, uh, you know, because TPMs are ubiquitous in industrial communication, data centers, your laptops, everywhere. They will all have to be fixed. They need a fix. So that is a big um, draw for people towards Lattice technology uh, when we show them that, look, we can fix this. So, yeah. Okay, so that that sort of answers a question that I had, um, or maybe it does, which was, what if these new PQC algorithms actually don't work? Um, like we saw, there was one that made it through a lot of the the um, NIST standards and then got cracked on a laptop in three hours. So, exactly. So this is a real risk. This is a, a brand new field. Uh, when I say brand new, I would should I should say actually fairly new. You know, we have had so much legacy work done on our classical cryptography. We are just scratching the surface on post-quantum uh, cryptography. 
So we have to expect that even though NIST will make their final choice, and they have already chosen uh, a few algorithms today, and they will make their final choice complete by 2024, somebody will come along and say, hey, I cracked it, or, or, or there was this flaw or that flaw. And uh, yes, then you need to have an upgrade path. And this is where Lattice has a very innovative solution in crypto agility, uh, which is very hard to achieve because you are basically switching out the algorithms in field. The part is deployed and you can you have you are looking for an ability to you know switch out an algorithm. And that's what we are working on today to allow uh, allow that crypto agility because that's a key demand by the industry um, to be able to do that. Everybody's anticipating that, you know, there will be changes in these algorithms and, uh, you know, broken or amended, something will happen, high likelihood. Hmm. Okay. Does that ability to, you know, change this in the field, does that introduce new attack vectors? Is that something that needs to be worried about? So when you do field updates, any kind, whether post-quantum or classical, you have to be very, very careful that this is uh, Trojan-free. This is done in a you know secure tunnel. There is no man in the middle. So when we offer root of trust devices, which have field upgradable capabilities, we take care of all of that in our design and protocols that it is a secure field update. It, you know, we check for integrity, that nobody has tampered with the new payload. We check for confidentiality. Uh, you know, it is encrypted properly. We check for uh, authenticity of origin. That means it is what I sent, not somebody spoofed something else, you nor know, switched out something. So we have... Uh, you know, various checks and, you know, protections in place for such updates. Yes. Otherwise, yes, it'll be very vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I care about security. I, I am, a you know, I like networks and security, learning about all of that. What should I do? Uh, or I guess anyone listening to this podcast as a consumer, is there anything I need to do now? I need to make sure my next laptop has a you know, a lattice chip in it or <laughs> for sure. Do you have a lattice chip in it? Ask that. <laughs> um, see, as a consumer, having an awareness of the threats that are coming um, is, is always important that this is coming. So you may want to, you know, keep in a, keep a, Euro out that okay what's happening you know is my bank even talking about post quantum uh, cryptography are they even worried about it or are they completely clueless you know you, you do not want to do business long term if your bank is not even thinking about it right now of course these institutes you know institutions will not uh, say it out loud because they don't want to spook their customers but from a consumer perspective General consumers, I would say, just do the same, um, you know, hygiene uh, that, okay, whenever you are paying for something, look for that lock icon and, you know, don't do in Starbucks and type passwords without going either through a VPN or through a secure Wi-Fi. Keep practicing that hygiene because for a normal consumer, 
the complexity of PQC switchover will be hidden. Uh, you see a lock icon today, tomorrow you may see a lock icon with a Q on it that, okay, we have upgraded to quantum protections. It'll be transparent to regular consumers, but you being a, uh, you know, computer science major and security conscious, you will actually be the professional who will participate in this transition uh, once you graduate and and, and do that. So uh, folks like you and in, in, in student body, it's a great idea to be plugged in uh, read about it, and actually, this will be a great field to gain expertise in, and 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 be aware and associate in this field with some projects and all. Um, because the other thing that is going to happen is like uh, AI ML and quantum computing. So somebody was joking: if you think AI ML is hot, think what happens when it meets quantum computing. <laughs> It'll just explode. You know, it's what people are calling a singularity moment because uh, as, as singularity is defined, you don't know what the outcome of that point is. You know, if you pass through that point, you cannot predict what the next step is. So when AIML meets quantum computing, uh, it, it just explodes in possibilities, good and unintended both. So as a student, uh, these are very meaty areas, uh, you know, to gain expertise in because this is our future. Yeah. Yeah. I guess selfishly, I'll ask, do you have any other advice for, you know, a hypothetical <laughs> junior in college who is interested in quantum computing and security? Um, so it's, see, quantum computing could uh, become very esoteric very fast. So it's 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 not easy to ramp up, and you know I've seen people checking out because suddenly they don't understand what a qubit is and what entanglement is, and you know, and all that stuff. And uh, I would say, don't worry about that. Physicists have worried about that. Don't get uh, disheartened if you don't understand how can qubit have all the states between zero and one, not just zero or one. It can have a state zero and one. Uh, don't get don't get disheartened by that. Um, so I didn't share this with you. I have a master's in quantum physics, so I lived through it. I studied it, and then I was happy to forget all about it <laughs> till I had to dig it all up. And you know, so to me, uh, entanglement makes sense mathematically, but to a lot of people, it just puts them off or it discombobulates that. Don't worry about it. That thing is not to be, just focus on the engineering aspect of it, that how is this getting used, what it means, what would be the implications, uh, you know, how are, what is the impact of it on the programming side? Just like you don't worry about the, you know, machine language anymore in, in computer science, Nobody does machine language anymore. You start CC++, right? And and uh, that's what I would say. Take that approach on quantum computing. Don't don't try to understand qubits and entanglement and superposition and all that stuff. That math is like, <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen people just giving up. Oh my goodness, this is all that spooky thing. So <laughs> that's, that's what uh, I would suggest. What do you wish more people understood about this 
confluence of security and quantum? So apart from the threat that quantum computers will pose to our um, security, I would like to first also talk about the promise of quantum computers. You know, I, I, I work in security, so I should play up the threat, but I'm also a quantum physicist, so I love this technology. There is a big promise ahead of us. You know, quantum computers can solve multivariate equations. They're really, really good at solving equations with a lot of variables, like climate change or, uh, and I'm not being facetious about it, or or really uh, uh, vaccine development for a pandemic, because you're looking at so many variables, uh, uh, you know, which molecule to choose and all that. Or, or greenhouse gas emission, they can solve this because no other computer has the wherewithal to the, do that kind of exponential computing that quantum computers can. So we should look forward to a huge improvement our, in our problem-solving capability. But the thing to keep in mind is that our future is hybrid. Quantum computers are good at doing one or two things. They can do multivariate equation solving, and they can do asymmetric math, which is where the threat to security comes in. And I can talk more if you want, but you would need classical computers to do your day-to-day banking, to do your Amazon and all. You don't need to have a quantum computer sitting there doing that for you. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of everybody's time. So this is where, you know, as students are ramping up, as people are thinking about it, as planners, industry leaders, we have to keep in mind that our future is hybrid. We should not have a knee-jerk reaction and say, okay, I'm going to switch over to computer quantum. But on the security side, we will not, I'm saying, uh, we cannot take the security threat lightly. Because as I said, quantum computers can do asymmetric math very, very, very fast, exponentially fast. Asymmetric math is, which is very easy in one direction, very difficult in the other. Factorization is one of those math. And that's all the basis of our asymmetric cryptography. So don't take that threat lightly. And and governments are woken up to it. They are not, they're mandating. I've never seen such strict mandates before with such strict timelines. There are executive orders from President Biden that have timelines of 60 days, 90 days, 180 days. I need response in, you know, response in 60 days. I need plan in 90 days, I need execution, identification, and budgeting in 180 days. These are days we are talking for government implementation, not months, years. So you can see the seriousness of it. So, you know, that that's uh, where I would say don't take it lightly. Okay, I'll, I'll take you up on that offer um, about more more details on how, like, I guess the question is, what specifically is the problem for existing um, hardware security? And then how does these new PQC algorithms uh, get around that? Okay. So today our asymmetric cryptography is based on what we call prime factorization. Uh, I'll give you an example. What is... 11 times 13. Oh boy, I didn't realize I was going to get quizzed today. <laughs> All right. 11 uh, times 13, 100. 
1033. So 143? 143. Good. But if you had a calculator, it would be one stroke calculation. 11 times 13. One stroke calculation. If I give you, give me the prime factors of 143, you would have to start doing the that erot, erot, erosthenesive. I don't know if you remember your... Yes, I, I can never, yeah, you know, you, you start dividing by prime numbers, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, and then you will hit 11. It would be like five or six calculations you will have to do before you will say, ah, prime factors are 11 and 13. That's what symmetric cryptography is based on. You know, they take two very, very big prime numbers and they multiply them. And you can think of those two prime numbers as the keys of that, you know, a private key and a public key. You need both of them. So if you have to break, you know, asymmetric cryptography, you have to factorize that big prime number, humongo, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of digits kind of a prime number. That'll take millions of years in classical computer because classical computer will go through that sieve and do one by one and one by one, it will go through all the prime numbers and it'll have to do that uh, thing. Because we have bits, which can either be a zero or a one. So we can do you know, this kind of a linear calculation only, or which we call brute force calculation. But due to the nature of a qubit, which can be either a zero, which is zero and one at the same time, it, it covers the whole spectrum when it factorizes, it factorizes at once. It, it, it attacks everything at once. It's, it's massive parallelism. And there is an algorithm called Shor's algorithm. That is the one that breaks asymmetric cryptography because that takes that brute force thing out. It does it in parallel. Shor's wrote this algorithm last century, you know, late last century. And he, he predicted that you need a quantum computer with that power to run this algorithm and you'll break asymmetric crypto. And uh, that's what is happening. And now we will have the, once we have a quantum relevant computer with Shor's algorithm, you can break current cryptography in months. That would take our classical supercomputers like million years or so, or, or you know, okay, 100,000 years, not in our lifetime kind of years, right? So uh, that's where the difference comes in. And that's where uh, the problem is. And the other problem that is happening is, okay, fine, it'll come in 2030, 32, at least I'll retire. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> but my health records are not going to retire. My uh, bank accounts are not going to retire, right? I need them protected. The state secrets are still relevant. So what the threat really is, is something called SNDL, steal now, decrypt later. So what the bad actors are doing, they're stealing your secrets now, which are all encrypted with asymmetric crypto and signed. And when we encrypt something, we don't protect it anymore. We say, hey, it's encrypted. So it's all there. And so they're just harvesting all that and they're sitting on it. They know that within next nine, 10 years, they will get access to these quantum computers then they can just break it with Shor's algorithm. And suddenly all your data is vulnerable. So that is really striking a lot of fear in everybody's mind. So you will either see Harvest Now, Decrypt Later, HNDL or SNDL in most of the government regulations. That's what they're worried about, that their data is being stolen today 
and will be decrypted and will be vulnerable, uh, you know, in the future. So I imagine even if we've got a, let's say we've got a quantum computer, it's cryptographically relevant. We've, and someone has gone through the hassle of stealing all of this, storing it somewhere. Uh, It's going to be a lot of data. There's a lot of data flying around on the internet. Is there any sense of these bad actors, are they prioritizing? Like, we're going to go after government secrets first, then bank records and health records. So then by the time we get down to the text messages that I send to my friends, we're like, (laughs) you don't really need to worry about that. No. Uh, So, of course, uh, first of all, the quantum computers themselves are not going to be available willy-nilly, right? The first people to have it would be the state actors, for espionage and you know and i'm 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 uh, i cannot say anything definitively this is not a lattice uh, thing but you know as as a industry person and as a conscious citizen i would say it is said right? like it is a industry consensus that state uh, actors will have access to quantum computers and they would like to know other state secrets that's why governments are getting so concerned right So that is definitely there. Then banking is another area where, uh, you know, you will see adoption of uh, post-quantum protections to be uh, very, you know, very up ahead. Communications is other. You can bring down a nation to its knees if if your communication infrastructure goes. Uh, Electric grid. So there is a timeline by ISARA. Uh, which is very, you know, you can see that when do you start mitigating various things. So first of them are actually satellite communication, your electric grid, uh, you know, all these critical infrastructure, then very quickly are servers and all that. And then you come to personal IDs and then you come to cars. Now think about all the software updates Tesla's get, right? Like, or other electric cars get. Oh my goodness, like they're all today based on asymmetric crypto. So you need to secure those. All the uh, software updates your phones get, they're all based on asymmetric crypto and that will be broken. So they all need that so that it's, uh, you know, that upgrade so that we have confidence in the system. This will uh, break confidence in the system. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it took us good 15 years to get those little lock icons on every website that handles sensitive stuff. We don't have a 15-year horizon. And we will have to, you know, implement or backfit this to such a huge infrastructure. So when people, when I give these talks, I, I speak in a lot of conferences, and we'll say, ah, you know, we'll do it. Uh, and I'm like, it took us 15 years to get there. <laughs> And <laughs> we don't have 15 years. And the infrastructure is, you know, exponentially bigger that you have to retrofit. So that's where the concern is coming in business leaders and, uh, you know, uh, regulators alike. What do you think about the term Y2Q? Do you like it or not? This is just a fun question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun thing. Actually, I might be uh, one of the first users of it. I don't know, but. Uh, I, we were joking about it like almost two years ago uh, that this is because, see, it is like that. It is a cliff like that. Uh, and this is such a serious topic that 
I don't mind if we create such buzzwords that people either get annoyed or at least it catches their attention, right? Because uh, as a security professional, as a, you know, an industry voice in this, I would like to draw attention and uh, get the skeptics to recognize that this is upon us. So uh, I smile when I hear Y2Q. But I also know that it is a real cliff that is developing and uh, we shouldn't just go over it. <laughs> you know, we should uh, have nice parachutes and everything strapped. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a buzzword for sure. Yeah, and, and buzzwords can be helpful for getting the public involved. I'm curious, do you find it easier to get you know the general public to care about like security and privacy or industry like industry professionals oh you wouldn't believe that um general public absolutely wants security and privacy it's just that they don't want to be burdened with it too much they want it to run in the background and just protect them and uh it's the industry the business owners because security comes at a cost it's not free so there is always a challenge of assessing ROI. Uh, do I invest it in it or not? And uh, there was a, a very good article by Forbes where they said, look, government regulation is going to be the biggest propellant for adoption of cybersecurity. Because when business leaders make decisions, they always are looking to cost optimize. And they keep asking, is it really needed? Do we really need security? But now when you have very clear regulations, uh, they don't have an option. They're not being given an option. Like uh, the CNSA guideline, U.S. government is pretty much saying, you want to do business with us? Please follow this. So uh, that's where I do see that sometimes I get more or I have to do more convincing to business leaders than general public. Public is like, of course I need security, of course. And the steel now decrypt later, that puts fear in the biggest of skeptics uh, that, oh my goodness, this is happening now. Nobody's waiting to steal. They're stealing now. Yeah, they will decrypt later. So that catches attention every time. Uh, another one of my, my side interests is space travel. And I'm thinking <laughs> through, you know, hard, maybe one of the hardest things to change once it's already there is satellites, um, right? Communication satellites being one of those major uh, like backbones of infrastructure that if they're taken out, that's uh, very hard to yeah. bring them back. Um, I'm curious, like for Lattice's technology, actually, I, I, I didn't get clarity on this before. Um, is it, you do need to be physically present in order to uh, change the algorithms that are that are running on it, or can you do it if even if it's on a satellite up in space? It's a remote update. We enable remote updates. Yes. So uh, you know when we work with our customers to create use models and various product ideas or product solutions, we keep various use models in place. Right. Okay. What is your manufacturing environment? What is your deployment thing? Are you your own consumers? You know, a lot of data center operators are their own consumers. It will just get utilized in their data center. They will always have access to them. 
or at least some of their employees will have access to them so they can actually physically go and you know unplug and uh, update if needed very expensive but it can be done but there are customers who just sell their boxes and it's out of their control it's at a customer or a customer's customer they really don't have access so the, we have different update mechanisms and there are different security protocols we put in place for different uh, things so in satellites that's a very interesting uh, point and that's why i said when i talked about that timeline and even in regulatory timeline um, satellites were number one to have at least some kind of hooks in there to get an update and that was like that timeline was like 2021 that if you're launching a satellite in 2021, you better have some hooks in there to get that update at some point. So I don't know how many satellites are doing that, but uh, and and these things can be updated on uh, firmware as well. So it doesn't have to go and change a silicon chips configuration like an FPGA. Uh, it depends on how much protection uh, do you want. But you can also have a soft processor running or a processor running, and you can do a secure update on that. But then again, uh, as I said, I was in aerospace and defense, so I have all those, you know, you know, lower orbits or Leo, Mio, Geo. Or, you know, it's what kind of satellite is it? Some are updatable, some have short lifetimes, some will just collect, you know, or some will take pictures of uh, Jupiter. It depends on the use case, right? So, yes, they will need to be updated or they will have to be protected in some way or the other. And there's a lot of work going on, a lot of uh, industry work going on. Um, I'm curious about, so we, we've talked about 2030 to 2032 being sort of the time horizon for a cryptographically relevant quantum computer. Do you know what size that corresponds to in terms of qubits, noise rate, uh... anything like that? Now that is a, a very contentious solution. Um, the question because everybody has their opinion. Some are of the opinion that we have one today. So today, if you read various publications, somebody, some would say, "Oh, we have eleven hundred qubit," because it's being updated every day. A any number I give you, uh, somebody will tomorrow announce, "Oh, I have another five hundred to it," because there are so many research labs doing. So the number that we have heard is could be anywhere between a 10,000 qubit uh, computer to a 100,000 qubit computer, but then a very conservative estimate has been a million qubit as well. Today, we are hovering in a couple of thousand qubits in various um, uh, you know, research labs, but you have to see how quickly we are growing. Uh, just like five years ago, we were in tens of qubits. And now we are in a couple of thousand qubits. So initially the ramp is slow, but then it goes exponential. You know, it's, it's, it's a very fast ramp. And then you have to also keep in mind, there are two kinds of computers, uh, quantum computers. One are called annealers. Annealers are the one that do that multivariate problem solving. So they are already at a very higher, much higher qubit level, but they can do the asymmetric calculation. So there's a whole another class of com uh, quantum computers that will do that asymmetric uh, calculation and break cryptography. They are in right now 1500 to 2500 qubit kind of thing. And they will need to get, at least the industry 
consensus is somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 to be quantum relevant. But then again, uh, we have to keep in mind what you see in the public arena in quantum cryptography. There is a lot of research that is happening under, you know, under the hood uh, because people don't want to if they are say, state secrets, they are nation secrets. There is a lot of uh, effort that is being put in. There are various industry consortiums, government consortiums, a government working with industry uh, to gain expertise in this and not everything gets published. So uh, that's where, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, don't just rely on what is getting published. Uh, keep eye on the regulation that is coming out. You know, that gives you an idea where the real threat is uh, landing. Okay. Well, as we wrap up, I've got some classic questions that I ask every guest. First one, what do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing over the next 10 years? So I would classify problems in um, two ways. One is actually to build a quantum computer. It's not easy today. You know, quantum computers need to be super cool. So you need a huge infrastructure. You need uh, cryogenic elect, you know, electronics because uh, quantum computers operate at like near zero Kelvin, which is unattainable, but just, just above zero Kelvin. And you need these high power lasers. Uh, you The whole infrastructure, everything is purpose-built. We don't have an ecosystem you know, we don't have factories churning out cables and you need superconducting material cables. You don't have them available in your, uh, you know, Fry's electronic or something. There is no ecosystem to build these computers. Every computer is custom built uh, and, and custom built. We don't even have materials, enough materials to build these computers. So there is no ecosystem. There is no supply chain for it. So what we have to do is to bring quantum specialists in touch with the industry veterans, people who make cables. Now you say, hey, guys, you need to make quantum superconducting cables. People who make you know, sensors, you have to say, now you have to make cryogenic sensors that can actually sense a qubit. So that is one problem. How do you even build these computers on scale and, and, and you know, mass produce them? And then, of course, the second problem is the problem they bring with them. You know, the unintended consequences or, or side effects like the break in cryptography or this singularity of AI, ML and quantum computing. Uh, how do we deal with that? So, you know, we have some very good, very prominent philosophical and social and infrastructure issues that will come, come out of this that we have to uh, you know, keep in mind. And then avoid a knee-jerk reaction. Okay, I'm gonna give up all my classical computer, burn them in a bonfire and, and go all quantum. No, our future is hybrid. So thinking carefully where to apply quantum computing and where to stick with classical and beef it up is going to be a big discussion in the industry and uh, it will take time to settle out, to create a hybrid solution. So those are some of the problems we have to grapple with as an industry, as uh, professionals, as, you know, nation states, uh, as a society. Um, th so those are the problems I, I worry about. Okay. And the flip side of that, what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing? 
promise, as I said, is the ability to solve big problems. Literally uh, saying that, hey, today I'm going to solve word hunger won't remain a joke. You know, you can actually solve problems with thousands of variables, which we can't even think about today. Uh, and and so the annealers, the, the quantum computers I talked about that are called annealers, they are the ones that can solve these things. Uh, you know, uh, tides, ocean currents, uh, weather patterns, uh, pollution patterns, you know, how things affect each other. Uh, the whole butterfly effect, you have heard about that, you know, butterfly flaps its wings in somewhere <laughs> in, in the Southern Hemisphere and uh, it rains in uh, Washington, D.C. or something. So uh, you can actually model all that. So it's it's no longer uh, you know, a fantasy, but but you can you can solve big problems. Uh, you can optimize a lot of industrial processes, the supply chain mayhem that we went through in pandemic, where nobody knew where things were uh, on, on which ship and where they are stranded and why am I not getting my soap dispenser? Uh, no, you can actually plan out your supply chains, make them way more efficient. Uh, so there's a lot of promise. Uh, there are a lot of big problems we need to solve, and quantum computers will help us to solve them. And the medicine is another one. Okay. Well, this was a great conversation. Thank you for chatting with me, taking the time. Um, where should people go to learn more about uh, your work and Lattice Semiconductor? So, um, of course, uh, uh, yeah, latticesemi.com, yes. So you will see our solution portfolio for Lattice and what we are planning to do. Apart from that, to learn more about quantum computing and the threat and various, uh, there is a forum, let me think. Yeah, it's called uh, Quantum Open Source Foundation, I think it's called. Yeah, Quantum Open Source Foundation. It, ha it is a page of many links in there. Some are behind a subscription, uh, but it's a very good starting point for various, you know, the very technical uh, chapters, plus some beginner material, government regulations. So it's almost like a link page. Uh, uh, this is an open source foundation, so the information is credible there. Um, so I would suggest you start from there and uh, you know learn about it get to know more about it and and email me if you have any questions i'm always happy to talk about it okay well great thank you so much and um, i i appreciate you coming on the podcast for quantum computing now yeah and as sophia said follow us on linkedin twitter facebook we are there we have a big presence uh, on our social media. So we will be happy to connect. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and I wish you all the best.